Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, team is mad. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh yeah, welcome aboard John Pielli Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, getting at you another solid Saturday morning here on MTR Radio. And of course, Passball Show is pretty much where you go to if you're a diehard baseball fan, you want to get some facts, some information, you want to follow the game on a national level like I do. And of course, feel free to tweet at me at John underscore PLA. I'll keep you, uh, you know, pretty much locked in. You know, everything I'm talking about, I'll tweet back at you. If there's a point that I bring up that you want to discuss further or maybe you disagree with or want to have some uh, commentary on any of my interviews, feel free to tweet at me at John underscore PLA. That's J-O-H-N underscore P-I-E-L-L-I on Twitter if you don't follow me already. But a uh, ton of stuff to get into. And actually, I'm uh, you know I'm kind of excited but also a little nervous because I got two hours here and I got a ton of things that I want to kind of get into in regards to topics and stuff and interviews that I want to play uh, through the duration of this program. So a lot of different stuff I want to get into. And I'm going to start out by playing an interview that I recorded with Uh, Baseball Hall of Famer, Monty Irvin. And, of course, Monty Irvin uh, ended up uh, making his Major League debut in 1949 with the New York Giants. Uh, Played uh, really from 49 to 55 with the Giants in 1956 with the Chicago Cubs. 1951, he was one of their best players, playing in 151 games. He drove in 121 runs, which led the National League, and finished third in the MVP voting. And if you remember the 1951 season, or you know of it, let's say you're a younger generation person that just was not around for that time. 1951 was the season, of course, known as the uh, the game that was turned on the Bobby Thompson home run, shot her around the world, Giants beat the Dodgers, Giants win the pennant, the whole thing. And Monty Irvin was a big part of that Giants team. He hit 312 that season, 174 hits, 94 runs scored, OPS 929. Was uh, arguably his best season in the major leagues as he, uh, for, throughout the rest of his major league career, never played in more than 135 games. Uh, which he did in 1954 when the Giants won the World Series. But uh, obviously, Monty Irvin's roots are obviously deeper than that. He had a great postseason in 51. He was 11 for 24 in the World Series against the Yankees. He was uh, the 
Giants lost that World Series, but not because of him. And, of course, also played on a 1954 team that won the World Series, the Giants' first World Series title since 1933 and would be their last until their most recent title that they won in 2010. But obviously a guy who had some experiences playing in the Negro Leagues. A uh, guy who, when, his, when he made his Major League debut, he was 30 years old. So this was a guy that uh, had played uh, baseball since he was, you know, in his teens. Played for the Newark Eagles for several years. Um, involved himself in a lot of other leagues. Was a very good player. He, was, he could play just about every position. Um, he, he had a catcher's mid. He could play catcher. He could play first base. He could play the infield. He could play the outfield. But in the major leagues, he was known as an outfielder. And uh, certainly a guy that... Uh, you know, has been through it all. And uh, some of the great things we get into in this interview is we talk a little bit about his childhood, which I think is, is very intriguing, thinking about how he, he grew up in uh, you know, the 1920s and 1930s when the time was obviously a little different. Um, just remember, the guy's 94 years old, and uh, you know, certainly uh, bless him very much for being able to have a couple minutes to speak with me. Of course, he was inducted into Baseball's Hall of Fame in 1973. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot here with Hall of Fame outfielder Monty Irvin. Good evening. This is John Pielli. I'm here with Hall of Famer Monty Irvin. Monty, thank you for having a couple minutes today. Well, happy to do it. Uh, yeah. I'm just being. Are you, are you located in Pennsylvania uh, or New Jersey? Or yeah. Not yeah, I'm in New Jersey. What about New Jersey? Uh, north, North New Jersey, over by, um, by right by the Giants football stadium. Oh yeah, yeah. Over there by the Yeah, yeah, by the Meadowlands. They got a you new... Know, uh, well, that's, that's where this area I grew up in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I up, yeah, I grew up in Orange, New Jersey, which is about half an hour from the Meadowlands. Yeah, that, that's, uh, yeah, that's what intrigued me, because a, a lot of your childhood took place right here in New Jersey. Yeah, that's true. Almost all of it. Just about all of it. I think uh, we left uh, Alabama... Actually, uh, you were actually one of ten children, if I'm not mistaken, right? One of uh, thirteen. Oh wow, wow! So you had even more than that. So it must have, yeah. you know, what, what I really liked about about reading your story was the fact that it seemed like throughout all all of the all of the children's young life, it seemed like you guys worked together really well. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, we're a big family, and uh, uh, you know, God-fearing and. and uh, tried to cooperate, and that's sort of the only way we made it, because uh, we grew up during the Depression. Uh, so, you know, great school, like I said, in high school, and then uh, go on to uh, the Lincoln University and Hunter uh, uh, PA, so. But I, when I went to college, I still lived in, in New Jersey when I uh, 
play with the Newark Eagles and travel all over. Uh, I and got married. I still live in in uh, Oxford, Jersey. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, no, absolutely. Once again, Jonathan Allen here with Monty Irvin. Now, you know when you when you when you started playing, you actually played under an assumed name, right? For when, yeah. and uh, what was the reasoning behind that? To protect my uh, amateur standing, uh, I started to play with the Eagles. New York Eagles, located there in Leon, North Virginia, farm club of the. Uh, we played as was a farm club of the. Uh, of the, uh, of the, uh, New York Yankees. And, uh, so, you know, if I played, I've lost my emphasis standard, so, uh, when we were old, uh, if we went on the road, I used, uh, uh, the same name Jim and Nelson. Jim and Nelson was a friend of mine who lived there in, uh, Nearby, nearby, a good friend of mine. He was a catcher, and I was started out as a catcher, so I just used his name. Yeah, there's actually a uh, part of, part of the uh, the book where we looked at, and you wanted to buy a saxophone when you were when you were a young boy, and you know your 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 mother ended up giving you what was I believe five dollars to end up getting it, and you ended up coming home with a catcher's mitt, huh? Yeah, I got to the, uh, to the, uh, sporting goods store before I got to the music store. And when I passed the, uh, sporting goods store, I saw that the, they had a mid on sale, catches mid on sale for five bucks. And, uh, and that's the amount of money that my mother had loaned me. So I went in and got, got to the, bought the, uh, catches mid, <laughs> and never did get to the music store. Which is, a, I guess, is you know, a good thing because uh, the existence didn't make much money, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they played late at night and so on, so I'm sure I made the right decision. No, you did. So I went into pro baseball and, you know, did pretty well. No, absolutely. Now, when when you started playing in the in, in the Negro leagues, I'm sure you had a chance to play with a lot of very good players. Uh, how how did you how did you first react to playing you know baseball professionally? Were you able to fit in pretty well? Yeah, that's really how they signed me. They had started me and uh, so that, uh, I had a great arm and uh, power, speed. And uh, could play each with, could play every position. I did play every position, and uh, uh, I fit it right in. Plus, I had uh, a couple of guys that uh, I hung out with. They were baseball players too, and they were right near me. And uh, so, I had no problem. And of course, uh, you know, 1949 comes, and of course, prior to that, uh, Jackie Robinson becomes the first uh, African American player to play in the major leagues. What, what did that mean to you in 1947 once you saw Jackie Robinson come over and play in the major leagues? Well, well you know, it gave me, uh, me and a lot of other, you know, uh, youngsters hope, and uh, you know, uh, uh, something to look forward to, if you, you know, they said to me, if, if, uh, if you're good enough, and uh, uh, maybe one day I'll be able to play in the majors. 
когда все свое рада, всякий сам одинаковый. Это найти мой старый это найти мой пара. Найти мой секс, и это большое лоро. you end up uh, coming over to the Giants for the 1949 season. Um, I'm sure it's, things still hadn't gotten to a point where the African-American player was completely accepted. How, how rough was it for you that first season? Was it, did, did some of the players make it easier for you, or was it still pretty tough? Well, Jackie had still kind of broken, hadn't broken up, and, uh, you know, uh, you still heard the, you know, the bad words and all that, but so... Uh, there is anything I hadn't heard, so, you know, uh, you know, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't that upsetting, just, uh, uh, you go ahead and play a game and try to play good baseball and change their mind, the critics or something like yeah, no question. Now, in, you know, in 1949, what were, the, what were the players that you kind of hung out with and maybe grew close to and felt the most comfortable around? Well, I came up with Hank Thompson, who was a third baseman. And uh, uh, after we left the ballpark, we never would see our, we'd see our teammates until we went on the road. And then uh, 51, Willie Mays came to the team, and so... Uh, African American wise, it was Willie Mays, Hank Thompson, and, and myself. Uh, all the guys on his high school, you know, were my players. Uh, I got along with everybody. Mainly, uh, Woody Lockman and Bob Thompson, Larry Jackson, and, uh, and, uh, you know, just about everybody. Uh, Jerosha had a meeting when we first came to the club, and he says, Well, oh, he said, we got a couple of guys here who want you to meet. I'll introduce you in a minute. But we think that, that a good ball player that can help us win a, win a pennant in the World Series. So he introduced us to all the players, and uh, he said, I don't care about color. You know, he said, uh, if, you, if you agree and can play, Good baseball, you can play on this team. So that's all I'm going to say about race, and that's all that was said about race. Did, Dream family, and uh, had a lot of fun. Do you, uh, no, do you think it helped that uh, Leon DeRocher was in uh, with, with the Dodgers in 46 and 47? Kind of, uh, you know, kind of made people, like, take him you know, seriously with all the stuff that, you know, people were saying negatively. A guy like Leo DeRocher who already stood up and kind of said that it didn't matter what color skin yeah, you were and you're playing on our team. Yeah, that helps, yeah. Yeah, he'd been through it with Jackie and Tampa and Don Newcomb and uh, a couple other guys who played the, you know, uh, with, with, with the Dodgers. He'd been through that, and then, of course, in 48, uh, 
uh, he came over and he started to manage the, uh, you know, the Giants. So, good manager, fair, fair-minded, new baseball, lucky, and uh, just a good guy to play for. So, the organization was good. And Horace Stoneham, who was uh, a very uh, wonderful owner, and well, not only was an owner, but he was a baseball fan, too. So that all made it, you know, easier. Yeah, and of course, you guys have a lot of success there. You win the pennant in 1951, and then in 1954, you win the World Series. I'm sure the World Series must have been a thrill. Oh, yeah. That was, that was wonderful. I only played with the guys for six years, and, uh, well, five years, one year was a club and uh, it was nice to, you know, win a pennant. And a dramatic uh, home run hit by Bob Thompson, and then back inning was uh, still three miles out. And then and Willie Mace comes to the club with his sensational talent, hitting, 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 appealing, uh, throwing, you know, stealing bases. It was just a natural. So that was that was. Uh, that was very thrilling. And then uh, to win the World Series in '54, 1954, in four in four games, that was that was quite a, that was quite a thrilling thing too. So in those few years, you know, sometimes two guys like Ralph Carter and Ernie Banks, they played a long time, but they never did play on a winner. But in five years, I played on a, on a yeah, no question. And of course, in uh, 1975, after you know you've done playing, you finally get elected to baseball's Hall of Fame. 1973, you uh, 1973, you end up uh, going into baseball's Hall of Fame. That also must have been a pretty special moment. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, No question. This is my last question right here. You had, you had a chance to play in both the Negro Leagues and in the Major League Baseball. In your honest opinion, what what league do you really feel had the best players? Well, well uh, let me just say this. And uh, so uh, every now and then we would 
we're gonna play, we're gonna play games against each other. We play games against each other, and we want about you know about half. And all the games we we spend about you know half the games we play. So it was great, great players on and on both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I tell you, man, I, you know, I wish we could go back in time and allow, you know, all the players to have played together all the time. It would have made, you know, you know, things all, you know, a lot, lot better, and it's the way it always should have been. Monty, I really want to thank you for having some time. I appreciate you giving me a couple minutes. You know, God bless you, and best of luck to you. Great opportunity there to get a chance to catch up with Monty Irvin, and it's not too often you have a chance to talk to a baseball Hall of Famer. Not only that, but a baseball lifer. A guy who was around the game from you know from the 1920s when he started to play as a kid, and some great stories, man. And if you get a chance to read my buddy Billy Staples' book Before the Glory, um, he gets into a lot of uh, different stories in regards to professional baseball players, major leaguers, and their childhoods. And he focuses on the childhoods. And if you know you're able to read that, you find out some great things about Monty Irvin, how he got a you know he had a big horse, obviously a huge family. The horse would uh, bring the you know stuff from the farm and stuff back. And uh, one thing I touched on it, it was really important. It was very evident in the book is that him and all his brothers and sisters. And you find out obviously he's one of thirteen kids, and uh, you know they were all able to work together and they got along well. And you know unfortunately one of his sisters passed away at such a young age. But you know God bless Monty Irvin. I appreciate him giving me some time. And you know hopefully you guys enjoyed that interview as much as I did. But we're gonna do it right here. Uh, on the Passball Show, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with a lot more stuff. I'm going to break down the stuff going on in my blog, and then we're going to finish up the first hour with another interview. So we'll be back with a lot more stuff going on. John Pielli, Passball Show. Don't forget to download the iPhone and Android app if you haven't already. MTR Radio. Back after this. Hey, I'm Sean Big Daddy Lynch. I'm Joe DeLisanti. And I'm Tim O'Brien. And, and we're your favorite tailgaters. Listen to our show every Tuesday morning from 11 to 12 on NTR Radio. We'll tempt your palate with football, basketball, baseball, hockey, you name it, we got it. That's right, we do. We'll stir things up, voice what's grinding our gears, and just talk plain sports. We hold nothing back. Sports Talk Radio, are you ready for the tailgaters? Five, five, four, four, three, three, two. You're listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition. Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds on MTR Radio. You're listening to MTR Radio. A flippin' out radio production. And you've got it. Hot, 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 hot. Blaze, blaze in the steel. Always covering the most current topics today. Check us out on mtrradio.com. We go offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. Get your name in front of over five and a half million people. Advertise on MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com for details. Taste is empty blog. Go ahead, laugh, laugh all you want, but the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest. Story ever told, okay? Faces empty blog. Faces empty blog. Faces empty blog. Faces empty blog.
Base is Anthony Blah. back john pielli passball show mtr radio network and uh, of course you know if you listen to that you know you could kind of uh, get a little flashback to your childhood like i did and uh really uh, probably an underrated time in professional sports that unless you were a kid then or unless you kind of lived through that experience i think a lot of people don't appreciate or remember how big time of an athlete bo jackson was in his time i mean obviously he's known for being that guy that was a uh, dominant running back for the for the uh, Los Angeles Raiders at the time, and of course the uh, Kansas City Royals as an outfielder, 6'1", 220 pounds, just uh, a freak of nature in regards to his stature, his strength, and the combination of his speed, and really was that next generation of superstar athletes that you know Nike and obviously a lot of endorsements kind of ran at his way, and you know unfortunately a career that ended. Uh, pretty much ended, not completely on the field as he did make a comeback with the uh, Chicago White Sox and then the California Angels to finish out his baseball career. But here was a guy that was destined for stardom. And I had mentioned before on previous past ball shows that, uh, you know, there's a series of athletes that have played multiple sports. And uh, really the hardest thing to do is kind of excel and be at the top level and be the best in the game in regards to the position that you play in two different sports. I mean, you could dominate baseball, you could be a great baseball player, but uh, may not necessarily be able to have that transpire and be able to compete at a professional level like a lot of the top players in their respective sports have been able to dominate. And Bo Jackson was really a freak of nature in regards to his ability to play pro football. And I think that's something that was really, really understated in his time. And obviously his career was cut short um, January 13th, 1991 in that playoff game and he was playing against the Cincinnati Bengals linebacker Kevin Walker ends up making a tackle on him and he injures his hip and I'll tell you the, the folklore story that makes him out to be such a freak of nature and such a you know extremely strong man was the fact that his hip actually had dislocated himself while you know through the hit and while he was on the field and stories told by George Brett of course who was his teammate with the Kansas City Royals uh, was the fact that he actually popped his hip back into place, which is something phenomenal, something that nobody should actually have the strength to be able to do. And Bo Jackson was that strong. And, you know, we get into the, the age of steroids and we talk about its its impact in Major League Baseball. And uh, listen, and I'm, not, I'm never going to get into a point where I'm going to accuse anybody of it. Was there a possibility that steroids could have been involved? Sure, but I, I've lived with that philosophy that if, if there's no proof, it didn't exist. And maybe it's a possibility. You could be that naysayer. You could be that guy that assumes that every athlete at that time was using. But remember, we're talking about 
the late 80s into the 90s. And, uh, you know, Bo Jackson was just uh, such a huge specimen of a man and uh, really was ahead of his generation. You look at all the huge players that you see in Major League Baseball, and you know a lot of them are artificially enhanced. And you look on the NFL football field, and you see a lot of the same thing. But Bo Jackson had the ability to do it all. And Nike was very wise to kind of uh, jump to him and give him the endorsement and say, hey, this is the next generation of superstar athlete. Let's be honest. I mean, there hadn't been a lot of that. that not, not only players that could play two sports, we knew about guys that can do it, but at, at a time decided to just make a decision and take one seriously and in some cases play the other one but not really be so serious about it. And Deion Sanders was a, was a very good you know baseball player. He was decent. He was an outfielder. He had some speed. Uh, he could have played his whole career in Major League Baseball, but you could tell his passion was towards the NFL, and that's what he wanted to do. And eventually he he allowed himself to become a Hall of Fame defensive back for you know a number of teams. And Bo, Bo Jackson had the ability to do both at such a high level. And that's what was kind of sad about the whole story. Uh, you know, Obviously, he pops the hip back into place, um, obviously ends his football career right there. Uh, the Kansas City Royals feel he was a little overvalued if he was going to miss the entire 1991 season season and what ends up happening is they release him he signs with the Chicago White Sox he goes through the rehab and you know if you listen to the commercial the uh, Bo Nose commercial uh, that was at the time that he was rehabbing and uh, he was trying to get himself back on the field he was uh, under contract with the White Sox he ended up making a miraculous appearance for the White Sox in the 1991 season that you had to think about listen nobody else could come back for for a, you know the, a bad of a hip injury as he had and get back on the field so quickly and it was because he was a freak of nature and I, I'm sorry to keep referring to it but Bo Jackson in regards to the history of professional athletes was uh, in my opinion a little underrated in regards to how huge and big and quick of a physical specimen he was and unfortunately he makes the comeback in 1991 he ends up having to have the hip replacement after the season is done and that has to do with uh, blood uh, you know having a hard time with the blood flow going to his leg and he has the hip replacement he's able to come back he's able to play again but obviously was never the same ball player again he had a decent season in 93 after missing a 92 season comes back, signs a contract with the California Angels for the 1994 season. But it, it's it's a sad story of what could have been because this really could have been the first professional athlete that could have starred in two different professional sports. I mean, there was no question he could have done it. There was no question he could have been an all-pro running back. He could have been a perennial pro bowler. He could have led the Raiders to maybe uh, some deep playoff runs like, like they had started to do in 1990 going into 1991. And you knew what he was on a baseball field. I mean, he he really was the next generation of star in the American League. You saw how he climbed the wall in that game, um, the, the mammoth moonshot home runs that he would hit, his ability to potentially be a 30-30 guy in regards to both power and speed. Um, you knew he really had it all. He was a five-tool baseball player, and he really was the equivalent of a uh, top type of NFL running back that he could have been an all pro and it's sad to see how his career ended up ending but you know what kind of gets me is how long ago it was because to me as a young child watching Bo Jackson he was right up there with Michael Jordan for a certain time and obviously I'm not going to compare Bo Jackson to Michael Jordan Michael Jordan was one of the greatest professional athletes and most successful professional athletes in all professional sports but Bo Jackson had that ability that really could be that next generation of star he was up there 
with any baseball player that you would mention in regards to being top within those couple of years and maybe to come to be even better. And his ability to play pro football, there weren't too many running backs that you would put up uh, for those couple of years that were in the same class as Bo Jackson. And obviously a lot had accomplished more before and would accomplish more later after Bo Jackson's injury. But you know, Nike wasn't exaggerating the fact, the fact that he could probably play any sport that he wanted to. Uh, you know, that one commercial has him playing hockey and basketball and track and field and driving NASCAR, you know, Formula One cars and uh, riding horses. This guy probably could have done anything he wanted to. And it's a shame that his, you know, hip gave out and he had that injury in that football game, which ends up ending his football career and uh, the hip replacement, which essentially ended his baseball career. But here's a guy that uh, probably could have been that guy that could have been a top player at both sports. And I don't think you can name any player you want that's played multiple sports before. And there's been a lot of success stories. There's been a lot of stories you could say about very good to great baseball players or football players that were so athletic that could play other sports. There was not another Bo Jackson. And I don't think there will ever be another Bo Jackson in regards to the ability. And I, honestly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb and I'm going to say this because I really feel it. I think Bo Jackson did it all naturally. I mean, there wasn't any evidence that this guy was never a hard worker from the start, a guy who lifted probably more weights and weightlifted um, in a time where a lot of people in Major League Baseball had not really gotten into it, but they had already started doing it in the NFL. In the 80s, weightlifting and weight training became such a big deal in regards to uh, you know setting up athletes to be as strong and as physically fit as they ended up being on a football field, but... He took that over to baseball and was really a huge physical specimen. And most of it, if not all of it, had to do with his ability to lift weights. And he, he would be one guy that if he found out down the road that was using steroids and performance-enhancing drugs, I would be surprised by. And, and honestly, like I was a huge Bo Jackson fan and kind of sad to see his career uh, you know, kind of go down the path that it did because it was nothing from outside that ended up uh, affecting it. It wasn't that he was a bad guy. It wasn't that he got himself in trouble. It wasn't that he was too cocky and thought he was better than the sports that he played. But that injury that he suffered on January 13th, uh, 1991 uh, essentially ruined his career in both sports and it's kind of sad and you kind of wish you would have gotten a chance to see because within your own eyes if you had the opportunity to see Bo Jackson at his best and really get to see what this guy was capable of doing uh, had he played a full career in both sports man I feel like I'm as a fan a little bit deprived from it and I can't imagine how Bo Jackson a guy who clearly had the ability to do it and to be so successful at both sports did not get the opportunity to. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, and we're going to stay along the line of Bases Empty Blog, and it looks like another Major League career has finally come to an end, and uh, which has been, over the last really four years, kind of a tumultuous end, and a lot of fans that have followed the career of Jason Bay, a lot of fans within the New York area, kind of felt like he was done a couple of years ago, but it looks like Jason Bay um, is not going to pursue a contract in the Major Leagues and might finally be content with retiring, and um, you know, listen, Let's be honest. I mean, the article that I wrote, I titled it The Jason Bay Roller Coaster, has finally idled to a complete stop. And, you know, you look at, you know, the word idling, and, you know, that's really where Jason Bay's career has been, particularly over the last two major league seasons. Probably it started within the year before, but this is a guy that uh, had a lot of ups and downs and had a lot of talent. 
um, not only throughout his major league career, but early on. This was the guy that was drafted in the 22nd round by the Montreal Expos in 2000, and a guy who was in the Little League World Series at age 11. And, of course, he ended up playing for Canada's Junior Olympic uh, team. Um, he was high, he was not highly recruited though while while he played high school and he played at North Idaho College. That it was at that point where he started setting records. Eventually transferring to Gonzaga, he continued to dominate. But uh, you know was wasn't scouted as a top type of pick. But the Exos saw enough to take him in the June draft. Ironically, the general manager of the Montreal Expos was none other than Omar Minaya. And of course, Mets fans who want to knock Omar Minaya will say, Hey, you know, here's the same guy that. Uh, signed him for four years, yada, yada, yada. Honestly, I don't knock Omar Minaya for that contract because if you compare that to uh, what Matt Holiday ended up getting the seven years, I think we both agree, we all could agree that the value that you could have gotten out of Jason Bay may exceed that of a Matt Holiday over the duration of seven years. Obviously, it didn't work out that way. I'll be the first to say I'm wrong, but I think most of us could probably agree that we were along the lines of accepting Jason Bay for the power hitter that he was when he came from the Boston Red Sox and prior to that, the Pittsburgh Pirates. But, you know, back on to, uh, uh, you know, the typical Omar Minaya queuing of, you know, bashing him. Uh, hey, Sandy Alderson's better. Omar Minaya sucks. I, I don't really agree with that because uh, Omar Minaya, with, with, no matter what he did and the way he did it, spending the money to get the players, he did bring the Mets some success. The Mets, uh, not to get too much off the subject, the Mets improved in 2005, won the NL East, and could have won the pennant in, in 2006. 2007 to 2008, in spite of the collapse of 2007 and failing to make the playoffs in 2008, they were still a good team and right up there until the last day of the season. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. Back on to Jason Bay. When Bay first came up with the uh, Montreal Expos organization, he tore up the New York Penn and Midwest Leagues in 2000 and 2001. Had some problems in the Florida State League uh, playing in Jupiter where he hit only 195 in 38 games and his value ended up dropping a little bit from the promise that was made before. And a trade was made at the end of 2002 spring training with the Mets. And Jason Bay, along with uh, Jimmy Serrano, was traded to the Mets for Lou Collier, who was a guest on the past ball show, of course. Check that out on JohnPLA.com. I got the Luke Collier interview as well as the well over 150 interviews I've done with current and former Major League Baseball players on that site. But, you know, back on to what I was saying, uh, Luke Collier was a bench player, a guy that had some value off the bench but was not looked at as an everyday player. But it took Jason Bay plus. So it showed what Jason Bay was valued for and was valued at that time. And, you know, he would, he would improve himself a little bit in the Mets chain. He would improve in St. Lucie and Binghamton. He would put up respectable numbers, but he would eventually be traded again that same season to the Padres with Josh Reynolds and Bobby M. Jones, who was the left-hand pitcher. And the Mets would get right-hand pitchers Steve Reed and Jason Middlebrook. He hit 309 for the final 23 games in a double-A mobile to finish the season at 283, 17 homers, 85 RBIs. He moved up to triple-A in the 2003 season where he hit 20 home runs. The OPS 951 in 91 games. That increased his trade value to a point where he was traded again, but this time with value um, with, to the Pirates along with Oliver Perez. Now, Omar Minaya, Oliver Perez, obviously the irony and everything that I'm bringing up here, but uh, along with Oliver Perez, he was traded uh, with Corey Stewart for perennial all-star Brian Giles. And 
the problem that Pittsburgh Pirate fans had was that Brian Giles was kind of their go-to guy, their star type of player. And uh, they thought it was another salary dump by the Pirates, but Bay came in there, ended up playing every day for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And there was a guy by the name of uh, J.J. Davis, who was a top prospect in regards to the Pirates organization as an outfielder. He was the only player in the entire league that had OPS higher than Jason Bay. And the Pirates decided to go with Jason Bay as opposed to Davis, who ended up spending the rest of the season in the minors. And Bay started to put up some very good numbers for the rest of that season. Obviously, we know what's happened since, but I wish Jason Bay the best because he was a guy that always hustled. He played the game right. He played hard. And it's unfortunate that his career ended without the success that was expected once he signed the big deal with the New York Mets. But John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take a really brief break and finish up the first hour. Back after this. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to MTRRadio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to finish off this segment of the program by playing an interview I recorded with former Major League infielder Ron Clark. And Ron played for the Twins, the Seattle Pilots, the Milwaukee Brewers, Philadelphia Phillies, was traded multiple times, and he's going to get into that. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Major League infielder Ron Clark, and I'll take you right to the top of the hour. So after that, we'll be back in five minutes with another solid hour Passball Show right here on the MTR Radio Network. Good afternoon, this is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League infielder Ron Clark. Ron, I appreciate you giving me a couple minutes. Hey, no problem. Yeah, of course, you, uh, you ended up starting your career up in the Twins organization. Just give us a couple minutes to tell us uh, you know, about you know, everything that it took to end up getting into the Major Leagues. Well, you know, I originally signed in with an um, independent team in Dallas, Fort Worth, because I'm from Fort Worth area. I signed right out of high school. Went to, uh, they had a working agreement with Bakersfield in the California League in 1961. And I went in there in June, and then I, uh, it was part of the Angels uh, uh, farm system, too, the next year. So I went to San Jose. Played in San Jose, we won the championship out there, and then my contract was bought by the Twins. And then I spent, uh, uh, let's see, 63, 64, 65, and part of 66 in the minor leagues with the Twins. And then I went to the big leagues uh, in the, uh, the last month of the season in 1966 after I had a, a real good year in Denver. 
Yeah, what I find fascinating, and you know, you touched on it a little bit, is uh, you know, a lot of bouncing around to different organizations. Was that was that common around the time you played? That you know, uh, different teams would pick up contracts of uh, players throughout the minor leagues. Well, yeah, see, they didn't have the draft then, you know, when I signed. And, uh, you know, they signed their players individually out of trial counts and, and scouts, you know, like that. And then, uh, you know, it was unfortunate. You know, I didn't get much of a bonus until I got picked up by the Twins. And because uh, I had it in my contract, when they bought my contract, I'd get a certain percentage of it, you know. Yeah, no question. And then, of course, you know, 1968, really the first season, you get to, uh, you know, a full chance to play in the major leagues. You know, tell us a little bit about that and how, uh, you know, how things, you felt things worked out that year. Well, in 1967, it was really my first year. And then I got hurt with spring training uh, with, my, with my arm. We were out in, uh, well, I started the season and then right at the first part of the season, when I was out in California, I had a bone chip in my elbow that I had to have removed, so I missed most of 67. And then in 68, I got a chance to play. I really played, I really played more, more shortstop than I did third base, but third base is my regular position. We were just hurting for, for an infielder, and I didn't play too good in, uh, in 68. Uh, for what reason, I don't know. You know, I was coming off a real good year in Denver. And uh, I just didn't, you know, in 67 I was hurt, and I went down, missed most of the year, and I went and played in Puerto Rico in the Winter, the winter League, and then uh, in 68 I started the season there, and, uh, you know, I just didn't do too good. And then in 69, you know, the, the positions in the field, and uh, they traded me to uh, the Seattle Pilots then. It was 1969, you know, they were only in existence for, for one year. There's probably... Seems like 150 players went through that team that year to try to find, figure out, you know, who was going to be a player and who wasn't, you know. Yeah, absolutely, man. I tell you, 1969 kind of stands out. That's the year Barry Martin ends up coming to the Twins. Now, you know, you had a chance to play in spring training and a little bit during the season. Did you notice uh, any much of a difference from a leadership perspective from Barry Martin that would make you think that that team was going to be as good as it was in '69? Well, you know, Billy was always an aggressive guy, even when he was a player, you know. And then, uh, you know, Billy was a coach with us when I was there, you know, in 60, in 67. And, uh, you know, I knew Billy pretty well. And, but Billy, you know, he was a good baseball guy, and, you know, he became a good manager. No, that's what he did, and uh, of course the Twins end up winning the division that year. You end up with Seattle, like you mentioned. Yeah, we, uh, I mean, it was, it was just... That year in Seattle was just like a tryout camp, you know. Yeah, it definitely was, and you know Don Mitchell is a guy who is very highly regarded. I believe he was one of, the, if not the first player overall taken in the expansion draft by them. And you know, it just seemed now by the end of the season they just you know didn't really have an idea of exactly what direction they wanted to go. No, they didn't. And uh, you know, Yeah, now, of course, after that, you mentioned you end up being traded to the Oakland Athletics, a very good Oakland Athletics team that ends up, uh, you know, winning winning the AI West and eventually uh, several World Series teams. Tell us a little bit about your experience there and, you know, what, what was good about, the, you know, the talent that you were uh, surrounded by. Well, you know, I, 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 I
you know, they had probably one of the youngest teams in, in baseball, you know, with all those young players, you know, and uh, had good pitching staff with those young pitchers, and, 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 you know, Raleigh Fingers was there to close the game out there. I mean, back in those days, you know, those closers, they pitched three innings to get a save, you know, so they just won. And uh, we had a good all-around team, and they all played together, and, they, you know, they all came up in that organization together, you know, owned by Charlie Finley, you know. And um, it was it was exciting, you know. Dick Williams was the manager, and had a bunch of really nice coaches there. And it was, uh, you know, I, I wasn't able to stay there too long. And I was from Oakland. I got traded over to Milwaukee. Same way over there, you know. Now when you, yeah, when you went over to Milwaukee, did you notice a, a difference in the way things were going as opposed to that first year when you were you were with uh, the Seattle team? Well, yeah, uh, more or less. You know, uh, when they uh, when they moved from Seattle to Milwaukee, you know, it was uh, it was sort of like the tryout camp there too. But uh, they kind of got it together, and uh, you know, Milwaukee was a good baseball town. It was just a shame they lost some grades, you know. But uh, you know, they supported they supported the team. Probably not as much as they should have, but we didn't have a very good team then either, you know. Yeah, no question. Once again, John Piatta here with former Major League Third Baseman Ron Clark. Now, you know, after after your playing career, you end up uh, getting getting into coaching. Was was this something that you had planned on doing once you were done playing? Well, I didn't I didn't know if that was going to happen or not. You know, when I uh, when I got traded, you know, I was with uh, uh, Hawaii. You know, I was really owned by San Diego, and it was just like a Triple A deal. You know. And then uh, I went over to the Phillies. They traded for me in winter that year because we played against, uh, you know, the Eugene team. And, and uh, Lee Healy was one of the coaches in Eugene, and, and uh, Jim Bunning was, was the manager. And they liked the way I played, and they were going to need some players. So, you know, they traded for me, and I was a triple-A player for the next couple of years in 74, 75 with them, and Jim Bunning was the manager in Toledo. And... Uh, they they kind of wanted me to uh, to think about it if, if I wanted to start coaching or anything like that. And then uh, in '76 and '77, uh, you know, they made me. I was a coach with Jim Bunning in Oklahoma City, and that was uh, that was kind of interesting to see because you know I was fairly close to my home in Fort Worth, and uh, but you know being being there with Jim and, and Lee and. Uh, Bobby Lanier and uh, and Ozzy Virgil 
junior with uh, helping those those guys uh, win that thing in 1980. Yeah, no question. And, you know, you end up having a lot of good players, which, you know, contributed to that World Series championship. And, of course, you know, you stick down there for, you know, for a little bit while longer. Now, you end up uh, getting a job in the in, um, Toronto Blue Jays organization as a minor league manager. Tell us a little bit about that, you know, switching over from uh, from the Phillies team and uh, taking over a Toronto team in 1982. Well, I mean, uh, I don't know exactly what happened there with the Phillies. And, and uh, you know, after that 82 season, you know, we, we didn't have a very good team in Oklahoma City. And, and the, uh, the farm department thought that they had better players than they really did. And, shit, I mean, we nearly lost. You know, I got fired after 65 games, and then uh, the fact when I went to work for the the Blue Jays for one year, and then uh, and then Phillies came back and said, "Well, they made a mistake, and uh, let me know if I wanted to come back." And I said, "Yeah, I'll come back." And I went went back over there for for a couple more years, and uh, then um, I went to work, uh, got a job as the field coordinator with the Chicago White Sox. And I was there for one year with the minor leagues, and then uh, the next three years as a uh, as a coach in the big leagues. And I was the I was the, the field coordinator with the White Sox in '87, along with I was the the infield coordinator too and director of instruction. You know, so I was able to take over the the major league infielders. You know, when I was there for the three years under Jim Pagosi and and uh, and Jeff Tolbert. And Larry Hines was the guy that hired me. You know, he gave me that responsibility to be a third base coach and the intimate coordinator. But I had done that, you know, before in the minor leagues and everything, so there wasn't a big adjustment. So once again, John Pierre here with former major league infielder Ron Clark. Now back to your playing career. You know, you mentioned about all the different times that you ended up switching organizations. You ended up being traded at least five times. There's actually a couple, according to Baseball Reference, a couple unknown transactions. But you know, to to be able to stick it out and continue to play. Uh, how are you able to just manage just being on different teams and really not knowing where you're going to be in some instances from year to year? Well, I mean, anytime you're a player, I mean, you're you know you're always subject to being traded, you know, and go from one organization to another organization, and you know every organization is different, you know. So, but uh, you know it wasn't it was uh, a big uh, an adjustment, you know. We just you know most of those times I was at the AAA level and everything, so you know it's. Now, do you think that had you had a chance, let's say, to stick with one organization for a, you know, maybe a more considerable amount of time, you might have had a better chance to have maybe a little more success in your major league career? Uh, I couldn't. No, because I was always hurt. You know, I, I had I had a uh, a knee problem, I had an elbow problem, and uh, it was just uh, something that you know just took its toll on me over the years. All right, Ron, I appreciate you giving me some time, and you know, best of luck to you, and thanks again for the time. You betcha. Thanks. Welcome to London. Welcome to Chicago. American Airlines. We mean business in Chicago.